When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. UPS and FedEx have similar annual sales at around $100 billion, but UPS has three times the market value of FedEx. So therein lies the opportunity for FedEx. Welcome to the Baron Streetwise podcast. I am not Jack Howe. He's on vacation, but lucky for you, we recorded a couple of interviews before he left. That voice you just heard is our Barron's colleague, Andrew Barry, who will soon explain why he thinks FedEx is a buy. After that, DollarsAndData.com founder Nick Majuli shares highlights from his new book, including thoughts on renting versus buying a house and why he's against saving up cash for a stock market dip. I'm Jackson Cantrell. It's a special vacation edition episode. Bring flip-flops. Don't forget sunscreen on the toes. Andrew, we're talking to each other from our homes. Still, but it's been a couple of years. You used to be able to look up and see me sitting ten feet from you. You can't do that now. It must be a very hard time for you not being able to do that. I miss you. You were closer, probably five <laughs> feet away. So, uh... <laughs> well, this is a very brave call of yours in the magazine, and I'm really intrigued. FedEx, it trades cheaply. There's no doubt about that. Ten times earnings, but it's just been kind of languishing for a while. You see a chance here for some money to be made. And you say that FedEx needs to bridge the gap with UPS, take a cue from UPS. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, UPS and FedEx have similar annual sales at around $100 billion. But UPS has three times the market value of FedEx. So therein lies the opportunity for FedEx in terms of closing the margin gap, in terms of its margins are lower than those of UPS, and its stock market valuation is lower. It's and and by the way, three times the market value, but also much higher free cash flow, right, for much UPS? Higher free so cash it's not flow. just perception here. UPS is a better business with higher margins, higher free cash flow, and the opportunity for FedEx is to narrow that gap. That's why we took a look at it. It's rare to find a company that's a market leader in a what essentially is a duopoly trading for only 10 times earnings and with a one and a half percent dividend yield. An old boss of ours used to say, I used to say, here's a cheap stock. He used to say, what cheap is one thing, but you need a catalyst. What's going to stop it from continuing to be cheap? What's going to stop FedEx from continuing to be this cheap? There's actually a catalyst brewing in that. Uh, Fred Smith, the founder and longtime CEO, will be retiring as CEO at mid-year, a new CEO who's a hand-picked successor will be taking on the reins. And that could be a catalyst for a change at the company. What investors might like to see them do is focus more on margins and rather than on growth. The uh, mantra at UPS is basically better, not bigger. And so you had an outsider come into UPS, which has been a very insular place, essentially was filled with corporate lifers kind of worked their way up from like, I mean, driving trucks to become CEO. And you brought in an outsider from Home Depot, and she's basically gotten the job done. Margins are higher at UPS. They're turning away businesses that they think is unprofitable. And 
demand for FedEx has been more about growth than essentially margins. And if they refocus the attention on margins rather than on growth, there could be real opportunity there. What are the lucrative parts of the business? There are a few different things going on, right? The ground delivery, the express delivery. I mean, describe these different businesses to me. And and what do you think is the, the culprit here in terms of the low margins? They have three main businesses. They have the express business, which is essentially overnight uh, package delivery, which is their heritage business, which is very profitable, but there's not as much growth there. Then they have their ground business, which they essentially compete against UPS for like package delivery e-commerce. And then they have a actually very valuable trucking business, which is called their freight business, which if they were to spin that off, would be very valuable, but they want to keep the company together. The big opportunity is in ground, which is where they compete against UPS. Their margins are about half of what UPS's margins are. That's where the opportunity may lie. There's a new chief, Raj Subramaniam. The company was uh, run by its founder, right, Fred Fred Smith. So this is really the first new chief. And there's an investor day coming up in June. And you know how it goes. The new guy comes in. He's got to say, wait a second. I've got a lot of ideas. There's a lot of changes coming. And he's got to go out and he's got to make his case to Wall Street and investors. Do you think that Raj is the right guy for the job? And do you think that he's going to be successful making that case to Wall Street in June? Well, I mean, the investor day in June will be important. It will be basically the unveiling of Raj as as new CEO for the company. The question is, how much of a break will he make with Fred Smith's policies and programs in the past, which have tended to emphasize growth over profitability? The company is talking the talk. They say, we are focused on margin. We're focused on profitability. And so this could be a real opportunity for him to show that. I think if he doesn't show that, and and if investors in Wall Street are disappointed with the results of the investor day, it could open the door for activist investors to get involved in the stock. It's a $50 billion company. UPS is $150 billion plus. I think it's even a company that Warren Buffett might like to acquire if it were available. I mean, it's right in Buffett's wheelhouse. He loves the transportation business. He owns Burlington Northern Railroad. This would greatly complement that if he could do it from an antitrust standpoint. I think Buffett would buy this company in a minute at a nice premium, but I just don't think that, that FedEx wants to sell. It is incredible when you think about it. it. You point this out in the story. It's almost a duopoly business. You know, being in a duopoly, you're supposed to be rewarded with like huge profit margins and a sky high valuation. You know, you've got railroads that are not duopolies, but they're trading at 20 times earnings. And here's FedEx at 10 times earnings. What, what do you think the potential upside looks like for the stock? The upside is a lot. I mean, they have 6% margins. They're trying to get to 10. That's their goal. The company's earning about $20 a share right now. The stock is around 200. So it's trading for 10 times earnings. This company, an investor told me, could be earning potentially $30 a share or potentially $40 a share if basically the economy continues to do well and they can improve things. So there's potentially a lot of earnings upside. So I think that's the story. On on the railroads, they actually are duopolies. And so while there are four main railroads in the country, there are two on the east of Mississippi and two west of the Mississippi. So they essentially have two duopolies in the rail business. They trade for 20 times earnings. That's kind of a model for what this could be. It's true. People will say Amazon's in the business, the post office in the business. But for all intents and purposes, it really is a duopoly right now. And that is the the last thing I want to ask you about FedEx is about Amazon. I think that there is this view on Wall Street that Amazon is becoming more of a competitor of FedEx and has potential at any time to say, hey, this is a business where we want to just go headlong into this business and provide third-party shipping to people. We see good margins here. What what do you say about the Amazon risk to FedEx? 
I just think it's probably not there in a major way. It's extremely capital intensive and difficult to take on. I, I just don't think Amazon wants that. I think they have delivery capabilities. They have been building them out mostly for their own packages and for their own business. It, it would be a huge endeavor. And I'm not sure whether Amazon wants to take that on right now. They've got other things on their plate now that I think interest them. I mean, in terms of advertising, their cloud business and you know some of their other initiatives in, in retailing. And so I just don't know whether they want to spend, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 billion dollars on, on trying to outcompete, you know, two entrenched players in delivery and logistics. Let me just ask you a question about the broad stock market then while I have you. Rates rising, right? There's inflation. The Fed has to aggressively raise rates. Stocks don't look especially cheap. What, are they going to be able to stick this landing? The Fed, how fearful should I be right now? Should I be? Is it time to panic? Tell me before you tell everyone else when it's time to panic. Is it time to panic now? I would think there, there, there's potential to earn decent returns. I mean, I think the Fed is going to be raising rates. And I think some of that is discounted already. I mean, that, that's the, really the issue. And can inflation be brought down? It's paid not to bet against the stock market. I mean, valuations are not that high. Maybe the stock market is trading for around 20 times earnings. Many industry groups are trading at you know below market multiples. And companies have been able to pass on you know, price increases. I mean, in the, in the 1970s, you had you know, many companies do well. And so um, I think you may not have outsized returns in stocks, but we're, we're down, I don't know, mid-single digit this year. And if you kind of get back to even or a little bit higher by year end, if there's some optimism, you, I mean, you could earn a 10% plus return this year. So you're staying invested. You're not making any different moves yourself. Where else will you go? I mean, bonds are looking better right now, but you're getting like 3% yields almost on treasuries and 3 three to 4% yields on munis, 5% on preferred stocks, 6% on junk. I mean, that's okay, but I think stocks are still better. I mean, Warren Buffett is still heavily in the stocks and he's been buying some stocks and buying companies. So you take a cue from Warren Buffett. I mean, He's not, I think, you know, shifting much into the, into the bond market or basically getting out of stocks right now. If anything, he seems to be more interested in the equity market now. Great seeing you, Andrew. Thank you for walking me through this great story on FedEx and Barron's. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Great to be here. Coming up, a wealth manager and author shares data-backed investing advice. Plus, how stock picking is different from basketball. That's next after this short break. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. Welcome back. Here's Jack with dollarsanddata.com founder Nick Majuli. His new book is called Just Keep Buying, How to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. I'm excited to talk to you about this book. This is what everyone asks for when they're new to investing, they say, where do I go for a book that just tells me how to get started and everything to do? What made you want to write this kind of book? 
the main reason I wrote it was because I thought there was a lot of theories out there in personal finance, things I had heard over the years that just weren't accurate. And so I slowly debunked those over time through blogging. And I said, you know what, I think I can write a book that kind of attacks a lot of these things. For example, you know, should you raise your income or lower your spending? That's a very common trope and people debate, debate, debate. And I think the data is pretty clear that the most reliable path to wealth is raising your income. And I show that across many different data sets, different ways of thinking about it too. So that's just one example of something like that. You know, we have, we have enough data now where we can answer a lot of these questions definitively. Two sections of the book, saving and investing. Is one more important than the other? Does it change over time? It changes over time and it changes because it depends how much you can save and how much you have invested. I'll give you two extreme examples. Imagine someone who's 23 years old, as I was, they just started saving money. Let's say they have $1,000 in their 401k. Let's say they could get a 20% return on that money, right? The decent return, very good return, actually. How much is that in absolute dollars? 200 bucks. It's not that much money, right? When I was 23, that would be like two nights going out in San Francisco, my whole investment return. That's 20% return is a great return, right? So that's not, not slouching there. But now let's take the flip side. Let's take someone with $10 million. 20% return for them is 2 million bucks or 20% drop, God forbid, you know, that's $2 million just, just evaporated, right? So they couldn't save that. You know, you'd have to have a very, very, very high income to save $2 million after tax in a year. You've got a section here on um, should you rent or should you buy? Tell me about that in the context of the here and now real estate market in the US where we've had close to 20% price growth in a year. Before rates went up, I mean, prices, I mean, yes, prices has gone up, but if rates are low, you can, you can still make your mortgage payment. But now with rates as high as they are, like the game has changed a lot in the sense that I've actually heard horror stories of people who bought a property and it's supposed to be built and the financing hasn't been done yet. And so now the property is built, but because rates are so much higher, they can't even afford their own house, which they could have afforded back when rates were lower. And so that's kind of a wild thing. But I think the main thing to take away with renting versus buying is figuring out if the time is right, the timing is right for you. Because if you think about it, for most people, this is going to be the biggest purchase of their life. And it's not a diversified basket. It's not like you're buying you know, an S&P 500 index fund. You're buying basically a single stock, which is real estate, and you're putting way more money. It'd be like putting 300, 400, 500, however much your house is into Apple, basically. And you're not just doing that. You're levering by borrowing money to do it. So it's a big decision. I think what you have to think about is like, okay, is your personal life stable? Is your financial life relatively stable? That's one thing. Are you going to be there for a while? What I said is like 10 years because the average, you know, real appreciation across history is 0.6% a year. Obviously, what's happened in the last year, even if inflation is like 8%, you're looking at a 12% real return in this case, right? Something close to that in housing, which is way outside of the norm. All right. So now let's get into what people should do um, when they invest. You explain to people why you shouldn't buy individual stocks. The average member of the investing public must say, but wait, that's... That's the advice for everyone else. I'm the guy who knows about the right stocks to buy. So of course I should be buying individual stocks. Why should I not buy individual stocks? So there's two arguments for this, two main arguments. The one most people have already heard, which is probably like, um, hey, you're probably gonna underperform the market. You look at the research, most active managers, these are people professionals, right? People are like mutual fund managers, all this. They underperform like 70 to 80% underperform. And this is true across most markets out there. You look across like domestic market, international, et cetera. That's generally true. That's the argument everyone knows. So you're saying, but I'm exceptional. Okay, so let's say you are exceptional. Research shows about 10% of people are exceptional, have skill. The problem I have though, which is what I call the existential argument against stock picking is, how do you know you're exceptional? 
Like if we go into a basketball court, like myself and LeBron James, let's say LeBron James was unknown, but he still had his skill, right? Same skill level. We went out there and started playing. You just know within minutes, like, oh, okay, that LeBron James guy has skill. This Nick Majuli guy doesn't, right? So you'd be very obvious, right? Although so I, lot- my, my advice to you would be, Chuck the ball up as soon as it hits your hand. <laughs> if it's a swish, just turn around and walk out the door. Say, look, that's it. <laughs> I and then won, leave, exactly. leave it. Leave it up to people to guess, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So the, the whole idea is the feedback loop's quick, though. If I'm missing shots and he's making shots, it's clear that he's better, right? It's a very quick, you know, we, within 10 minutes, we would know, right? Within maybe in two minutes, you would know, right? But with stock picking, you and I can pick a set of stocks and we can come back a year later. And if yours is higher, that doesn't necessarily mean you're better. You could have just gotten lucky. You could have had one stock that no one predicted. You could have something like the GME thing or, you know, GameStop went to the roof, you know, in early 2021, like all sorts of things that can happen where you can win without actually having skill. And I think to prove it statistically, how much time you need, I mean, estimates vary, but you're going to need probably at least a decade. The feedback loops are so long, it's basically a guessing game to me. So my whole thing is like, yeah, if you want to pick some individual stocks, take some small part of your money, do it for fun, you know, 5% of your wealth, whatever, have at it. I don't have a problem with that. But if you're going to do this like as a full time, like this is most of my money and it's and you're really trying to beat the market, I think that's where you can kind of get into trouble. Have you noticed, speaking of GameStop, there's no benchmark for like arrogance level but but when you have a market where some things make a lot of money in a hurry there are people who are momentum investors who just i bet you made some real quick profits and imagine that they just uh, have some sort of unbeatable investing skill i think back to the dot-com bust i bet you there were a lot of people who thought they were skillful back then let's let's say best case scenario that these people do that what should they be investing their money in for the stock exposure i assume that the core of building wealth um and your investment strategies having exposure to stocks for me in particular yeah it is low cost index funds diversified you know like S&P 500 you know international stocks emerging market all that stuff yeah but you don't have to necessarily do that i know people as i said there's a lot of ways to get rich i know people have done it in real estate you can do it with farmland you can do it with all sorts of different ways you can make your own products in theory that's an income producing asset you have to create that thing so that's more linked to your labor explicitly so there's a lot of different ways you can do this in terms of the GME thing, like you're talking about the arrogance stuff, like that happens. And I think if you had given that speech in November 2021, it would have been far more relevant than it is today because we've already seen that happen. Like the the market has collapsed since then, for at least like the high the high flying you know growth stocks and some of the crypto stuff has come down a bit. You know, I knew a crypto guy that went 10x in 2021. He's like, you know what? I just need to do seven or eight x this year, then I'll be good. I'm gonna retire. I'm like, okay, cool. 2020 was the craziest market I've ever seen. I mean, I don't have a massive tons of experience, but I still think it's like one of the craziest years ever because. What happened in 2020 made sense. Like, yes, the markets were dropping 10% a day and this and that, and it was wild, but like the global economy shut down. Like, it, you know, it made sense what was happening, but what happened in 2021 made no sense because prices of these obscure things were just going to the roof. So the stuff I've seen, like, yeah, people thought it's like, you realize who's a genius and and who just was in a bull market pretty quickly. And so I think for most people, it was like, oh, we were just in a really crazy bull market. For a new investor, you know, you don't have to worry about losing your money. You don't have money. I mean, if you're a, a new saver, but what about somebody out there who's been like underinvested or had too much money in savings? They're reading your book and they're saying, you know, I, I know I have to do something different. I know I have to get involved, but the markets are so high right now. What would you tell someone like that who's been sitting too much in cash and waiting for that next big downturn so that they can buy cheaply? The issue with that strategy is usually, I mean, most of history, 80% of the time you're going to underperform compared to just putting all the money in now. Now, of course, if you've been sitting in cash forever, going from all cash to 100% invested overnight, it's not going to happen, even though the data shows it's optimal, whatever. Those people are going to have to average in, even if it's suboptimal, but they're going to pay 
a peace of mind fee to do that. And that's fine. And yes, stocks are prices are elevated, but also yields are, are pretty low too. So into, if the 10 year goes above 5%, again, then we can discuss whether, you know, I don't think stocks are going to stay where they are, but I don't know if this 10 years going to go above 5% again. Right. So that's the question. So I would say, yeah, just get into a diversified basket of, of stocks and bonds. If you want maybe real estate, farmland, I mean, find what, what works for you, what type of things you want. You've got a chapter called the most important asset. I'm guessing it's not Dogecoin or AMC Entertainment. I'm out of guesses. What is the most important asset? It's time. And time's most important asset because I started the book talking about where you should spend your time. You know, when I was younger, I spent so much time looking at my investments when I didn't have much money to invest. And it was, I should have spent my time really focusing on my career, building more skills. I would have been better suited for my career. And I think for most people, that's true of anything. It's where you're spending your time, where you're spending your energy. The uh, thought experiment I used came from Peter Atia, and Peter Atia basically gave this talk where he's like, you know, do you think Warren Buffett would trade all his wealth and fame and everything to be 20 years old again? And the answer is yes. And I'd argue he'd actually go into debt for it. Like he'd be willing to give up all his billions and everything and to go back in time and kind of, you know, relive that. Because I think at some point, you know, all the money in the world is not going to buy you more time. And so figuring out that balance is, is the key to life. Thanks, Andrew and Nick, and of course, Jack, and thank all of you for listening. If you have a question for us, tape it on your phone, use the Voice Memo app, and send it to jack.how at barons.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you listen on Apple, write us a review. If you want to find out about new stories and new podcast episodes, you can follow Jack on Twitter at Jack Howe. That's H-O-U-G-H. See you next week.